This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. A little while ago, for reasons that will become altogether apparent, I decided to look up some short video clips related to the actress, singer, and once upon a time icon of tap dancing, Shirley Temple. I had cause to do so because she's referenced in the book I'm chatting about today, Wasted Choi's The Jade Peony. I have to say that I had this moment of shock when I watched one particular video. I have included a link in my show notes to this video because of how deeply uncomfortable it made me feel. So allow me to insert a possible trigger warning here. The video on the Good Ship Lollipop seems innocent enough. She's completely surrounded by these apparently doting male figures. She's certainly an endearing child. This is what she's famous for, held up for our popular adoration as a kind of Western ideal of what constituted childhood beauty and innocence. But why, I wondered, is her little dress so, well, little and short? In fact, at a certain moment, you'll see her tugging her dress down unconsciously. It's at the two-minute mark of the video I posted. Did you catch it? I talked this over first with my partner, an historian, who constantly reminds me, correctly, of course, about the importance of contextualizing my opinions and perspectives, that we have to remember that ideas or perspectives don't necessarily hold across generations. I can't therefore hold up history to a contemporary standard. It's impossible. We need to frame our understanding of images and ideas in the context in which they were produced. Fair enough. So then I showed the video to my students at the time. And sure enough, they not only shared my reaction, their reactions were even more pronounced. Well, I wanted them to see this video because of its importance to understanding the first part of Wayson Choi's deft novel. We're supposed to understand the link and then the disjunction between Shirley Temple herself and the young Chinese female narrator, Zhuk Liang, who impossibly aspires to be just like her. But that connection between these two figures then invites us to draw parallels between the plurality of men gazing upon Shirley Temple in this video and elsewhere and the elderly male guardian, Wong Suk, in whose care Zhuk Liang is eventually entrusted. He's described as this ancient man and she as a very young girl, and they are from completely different generations. They seem the most unlikely of friends, which is yet what happens. Still, my students initially reacted to Wong Suk as well, one Quebecois student in particular referring to Wong Suk as mon oncle cochon, for those of you who need the translation as I did, this literally means my pig uncle. That is the kind of character in families who don't understand or respect appropriate boundaries and get a little too handsy with the nieces. But as we'll see, there really is no evidence of Wong Soup being anything 
but appropriate, even as we make links to the temple films and the period being evoked by them in this novel. It's in part about putting the story in its context. That is, in the novel, but also in the historical context of which it is a part. Let me give you a little bit more information about the novel first so that you'll understand where I'm going with my assessment. The Jade Peony is a tripartite novel set in Vancouver's Chinatown during the 1930s and 1940s. Choi is a West Coast writer from Canada who died recently in April of 2019. He came to writing later in life, and indeed this novel apparently took him 18 years to write. Talk about tenacity. He has this elegant, simple way of delineating scenes and characters, somewhat reminiscent of Heather O'Neill, about whom you'll remember me saying is artfully artless, rendering complex characters and ideas in these seemingly simple ways. We could also say this about Wayson Choi. Although Choi and O'Neill are charting completely different cities in Canada, Vancouver, and Montreal, respectively, in completely different eras. Well, in this novel, he's characterizing several generations of Chinese immigrant families and the complications that arise in relation to the sociopolitical injustices of the 1940s. For example, the second section, which represents the perspective of the second brother, comes to realize as he grows into maturity that he's queer and that being queer at this time during the Second World War in a Chinese diasporic community in Vancouver is anything less than ideal. Each section chronicles the daily lives, the desires, the conflicts of these three siblings of one family from their own perspective. The second brother to whom I've already referred is the focus in section two. The third brother is the focus of the third section, and Zhu Liang is the young female narrator and the focus of the first part of the novel. She's also the subject of today's episode. Zhu Liang develops this fascination, as I say, with Shirley Temple, Hollywood cinema's sweetheart during the Depression. And specifically for Zhuge Liang, this kind of icon of ideal girlhood. A crucial moment develops, however, when she gazes in the mirror only to realize this disjunction between her facial features and her, quote, spindly legs matched by a pair of bony arms, end quote. And this cinematic image of young racialized, that is, white beauty. Temple commands this kind of attention and adulation that are just not available to Zhuge Liang, generally speaking, but specifically within her own context, too. She often feels useless and disparaged because of her gender. In spite of her unsettling misrecognition, Zhuge Liang eventually becomes more like Temple than she realizes, albeit neither personally nor physically and yet, as I'll argue, considerably less like Temple in ways that are ultimately redemptive. So Wang Suk arrives, this elderly man who otherwise lacks deep familial attachment to any other members of the Chinese diaspora in Vancouver. It's clear he's otherwise isolated and alone. 
but Zhu Liang's family eventually decides to invite him to spend time with him, and with, in particular, Zhu Liang, who otherwise herself seems quite isolated. And so his role becomes key in their lives, and specifically that of Zhu Liang, in that he seems to facilitate this transformation from the initial problem of Zhu Liang's distance from her icon, Shirley Temple, toward greater proximity. How? Well, she ends up performing these tap-dancing routines to imitate her Hollywood idol, which elicit his admiration. The increasing affection between the two, which is in part predicated or based on her imitation of Shirley Temple, on the one hand, uneasily situates Zhu Liang in this relationship with him. She is subject to and framed by a male gaze, and yet on the other hand, it provides a temporary form of stability, both for her, for Zhu Liang, who is otherwise often characterized as this useless girl in a Chinatown family that doesn't brook her Hollywood fantasies, but also for Wang Suk, who is thereafter adopted into and finds connection with her family. Let me return first to my initial understanding about Shirley Temple and my response to that video I was referencing. Now, in case you're wondering whether or not I'm the only person, or whether or not only my students, had that reaction, I should share with you that the scholarly reception that focuses exclusively on Temple and her role in Hollywood cinema sometimes tells a similar story, although sometimes it doesn't. The critical assessments range from trying to explain the appeal Temple had, the logic undergirding her widespread appeal, to seeing her as an objectified young girl subject to a male gaze. One critic, her name is Ina Ray Hark, for example, she observes that in Hollywood during the Great Depression, Temple was this kind of catalyst for the validation of men. It was a narrative move typical of the Shirley Temple formula, Hark argues, in that it involved this transformation of all men into fathers. So, on the one hand, the father figure in this context provides security, proper values, a standard for good behavior. But on the other hand, he himself has offered a corrective to his previous estrangement from his family during the challenging era of the Depression. And therefore, he's offered a redemptive connection through Temple that allows for him to be reinstated as a father figure. Now, other critics have argued that Temple's allure and her prominence wasn't related to her involvement in the redeeming of male figures um, and that she wasn't involved in recuperating them as caregivers and fathers. They argue that her allure or prominence was related to her objectification. And attache tatouk, as they say in French, or hold on to your hat, but to a repressed pedophilic desire for the sexualized innocence of feminine youth. Another scholar, Kristen Hatch, for example, argues that Temple's stardom risked being undone by this discourse of pedophilia and child endangerment that framed men's interest in child stars in terms of sexual desire, a discourse that her studio, 20th Century Fox, actively worked to repress. Yet another critic, Era Ostervale, concurs. 
She argued that Temple's body was constructed as this kind of erotic spectacle, and that she even supplanted the likes of Mae West in the box office draw in the nation. So she argues that there's this erotic appeal of the body of the child. When I read Ostervale's argument, I thought, well, then what of my partner's argument to contextualize our perspectives? Am I reading this in a way that is anachronistic? Ostervale would not be inclined to agree. And in fact, she argues that Temple's infantile sexuality was carefully constructed by Hollywood. So this is a quote from her research. As 20th Century Fox executive Daryl Zanuck commanded, quote, Keep her skirts high. Have co-stars lift her up whenever possible to create the illusion now selling so well. So Ostervale notes that Temple's innocence and those signature shots of her underpants were actually crucial to her appeal. Now, if Temple's body was subject to this pedophilic gaze, this obsessive looking at or idealizing of a child's body, we have to examine those tensions and draw conclusions about the nature of the relationship between Zhugliang and Wang Suk, whose relationship is being informed by and framed by the images in circulation about Hollywood's little darling, Shirley Temple. Zhuk Liang, of course, doesn't relate to or understand such eroticization. She's too young. She wouldn't understand the, how shall I put this, the less than palatable elements, racially and sexually, of her reenactment of Temple's performances. For children of this era, Temple would have been a primary subject with whom they identified, and they obviously didn't know that they were being placed in this kind of fraught position. While this may hold true, Zhugliang perceives Temple and the glamour of this Hollywood icon as an antidote to the poverty of her life and to the unbalanced relationship with her male siblings. So the very first chapter of her section opens with the fact that she has, quote, two brothers to worry about, end quote, that a third is on the way, and that she desired another girl, a sister, to balance things. With the birth of her younger brother, she's no longer the youngest, and more importantly, she's still the only girl. She's fully aware of this gender-based difference when, by the second chapter, she notes that her younger brother, Seki, receives, quote, twice the number of jade and gold bracelets that I got as a baby, end quote. So she conjures up Temple as her imaginary close friend and ally, in whom she might find an appropriate companion. And what Zhuk Liang wants is connection and solidarity. She daydreams, therefore, constantly about her friendship with Temple. Quote, it was a fact we were both nearly nine years old. If we had had a chance to meet, it was a fact that she would have been my best friend. With the arrival of Wang Suk, however, she finds a real companion and her own audience. And in this sense, she begins to perform, kind of like Temple, for his male gaze and adoration. She refers to him as my bandit prince and she has his Shirley Temple princess. He would indulge me, she notes, by watching one of my miniature performances. 
and as I took my bows, I drank in the way Wang Suk applauded, banged his two bamboo canes, and oohed and awed at my efforts. There are, of course, shades of romance and fairy tale woven through the fabric of her narrative. Now, Wang Suk, conversely, is introduced as an old China friend of grandmother's, that is, Zhugliang's grandmother, who is put into contact with Zhugliang's family because he's too old to live alone. His very existence is evidence of the fraught notions in the period related to identity, to kinship, and to collectivity that don't allow for coherent relationships. What I mean by this is he's one of the poverty-stricken bachelor men who were left alone in Gold Mountain and who are shoved aside or threatened or forgotten in the period following Canada's Exclusion Act of 1923, when Chinatown's population was cut in half. In other words, he's not a privileged white man. He's an elderly, racialized subject who would have been left to die alone had it not been for Zhugliang's family. And it's not about his locating a place in Chinatown that allows for his sense of integration, but rather his specific connection with Zhugliang. So, to some extent, neither of them, he this elderly bachelor man and she this young girl, is really valued in the community. So, when she meets him for the first time and gazes upon his wizened face, and declares him to be the monkey king of the stories recounted by Zhugliang's grandmother, she invests him with this affective and relational significance. Touched by how she identifies him, he wipes his eyes in response to her overtures. I should say that she reaches out to touch him, specifically his face. And in doing so, she moves past those social formalities by which the rest of the family is being constrained. Because of her connection with him, in other words, the rest of the family also welcomes him effusively. So the introduction to the family provides him with sustenance and citizenship. He's described as a distant uncle, and literally and figuratively he's nourished during his first visit. In this sense, the relationship between Zhugliang and Wang Suk invites a transformation for both of them. So he's able to declare somewhat later in her narrative in what she refers to as one perfect day. You are my little girl, my family. Some of the scholars who talk about Shirley Temple and her role in reinstating men as father figures, they may be applied here. In response, she experiences a moment of considerable happiness as she observes, I knew our adopted relationship was a true one. Wang Suk would otherwise have been only one of the many discarded bachelor men of Chinatown, and I, barely tolerated by my grandmother, would merely be a useless girl child. If no one else appreciates her, she knows that Wang Suk knows her worth, and, as she says, would never desert her. It is her grandmother's insistence that women have little value that prompts Zhugliang's desire to play-act, and yet not, as she outwardly exclaims, only for Wang Suk. She admits that she also play-acted, quote, for myself, 
imagining a world where I belonged, dressed perfectly, behaved beyond reproach, and was loved, always loved, and was not, no, not at all, Mo Young. That is, she was not a stupid, useless girl. It's the latter point, her lack of validation in Western and Chinese patriarchal systems, that really compel her to turn to temple in the first place. Zhu Liang only relishes these kinds of fantasies of identification with that Hollywood star because of her position within the family. In this capacity, I suppose it might be argued that she finds value in a male gaze. But if Shukliang really is the subject of a male gaze with its implications of voyeuristic desire, one key difference is that the narrative here is from her perspective. She recounts key elements of her childhood, she reshapes her identity, even as she also determines the shape of and understanding of those around her. She describes and characterizes Wang Bak, who becomes Wang Suk, and she is involved in her self-characterization as she names him and confers upon him an identity that allows him to be integrated into her family. Finally, Wang Suk does serve as her father figure, and he provides Zhu Liang with sustained emotional security and validation. He models a standard of ethical behavior in his decision to accompany the shipment of 2,000 pounds of bones that were going back to China to find proper burial. As a side note, I should say that Wang Suk is involved in the repatriation of bones, that is the return of bodies back to their ancestral home, because many Chinese immigrants believed that they would be able to return to their homeland to die. However, many Chinese immigrants died in Canada, and so as a result, they were trying to honor the performance of cultural rituals and to be buried in Chinese soil near their own ancestors. What this means is that Wang Suk is engaged in this respectful ritual. Zhu Liang, of course, doesn't understand this, and so her initial response is, what did bones have to do with us. I wanted to spread out his cloak, hang it up as we always did for our stage curtain. I wanted to do my Shirley Temple dance and shake my ringlets. Her response suggests her impetuous desire to continue their weekly routine, but it is Wang Suk who must teach her to put aside childish things for greater ethical concerns. Although Zhu Liang does not immediately understand or appreciate his decision, she reframes a question he once asked her during one of their moments of play-acting within a larger context to show that she later apprehends the value system he was trying to teach her. Quote, What should a prince give his princess? He had asked her. End quote. She acknowledges that she responded at the time, quote, Greedily, too quickly, my childish fingers grasping imaginary gold coins slipping over pearls large enough to choke a dragon, and that she did not then, in the days of our royal friendship, understand how bones must come to rust where they most belong. If he begins as Wang Suk, 
and then transforms into the Monkey King or Robin Hood, these various roles during their friendship. He resumes his place as Wong Suk as he assumes these responsibilities that speak to larger ethical and cultural commitments. Whatever implications there may have been for potential inappropriate elements to the friendship between these two characters, Wong Suk makes clear that the friendship ultimately has valuable and redeeming properties, indeed that it has royal elements that address the cultural and spiritual claims to identity and place. In her closing observation to her section, she thus makes it plain that she's not the perpetual child that Temple is made out to be, but rather one who grows into maturity, who appreciates these larger claims and his real, sustaining, nurturing friendship. She understands, fundamentally, the importance of connecting across generations. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. I first heard about Madeline Caritas Longman when she gave a public reading held in an art gallery. There were about seven of us giving such readings, and she was this quiet, unassuming presence. Well, at first. But when she was called up to the microphone to read, I was immediately riveted. I wanted to know who this young woman was, and how had I not heard of her poetry before? Well, since then, Longman's debut collection, The Danger Model, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2019, went on to win the Concordia University First Book Prize through the Quebec Writers Federation. And I really wasn't surprised. She has this remarkable poetic voice that is at turns wry, ironic, mournful, contemplative. It's a voice that carries with it a maturity that is beyond her years. The collection is divided into three parts. Transformational Impulses, Dear Void, and Something Like Living. The section's titles are as evocative as the poems themselves. The emotional intensity and complexity compressed into a few choice words offer worlds of experience. Take this, for example. The inability to express anger may be read as contentment. Or this. To exist requires immense energy. Do you permit yourself to exist? It's not a yes or no question. There has to be a how. These kinds of poetic lines, so evocative in nature, probing and challenging the readers, dazzle on a tightrope wire between hopefulness and hopelessness, between energy and inertia, between presence and absence. The poems, therefore, pull the readers into these thoughtful and ruminative engagements and leave us wanting more. I, for one, am already looking forward to her next collection. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.